0: There's sometimes a reaction of wanting to just burn it all down and start over. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people get really hurt in revolutions. And so what I saw was the opportunity of of an evolution.
1: Hey, folks, and welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm not going to hide it. I've missed you. I've taken a few months to regroup and recharge, and I'm feeling pretty much ready to get back into this. It's good timing, too, as there's a lot going on in Ohio, as you know. In the category of what I did with my summer vacation, I traveled a bit, played a lot of baseball with kids, finished a book, and made some progress thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. So, more on that over the coming months. We're starting off with a slightly wonky but really important episode today. Longtime listeners know that we've had Lauren Anthes on several times. Lauren used to work full-time with one of our favorite collaborators, the Center for Community Solutions, which does exemplary work here in Ohio and especially in Northeast Ohio. Our next episode, in fact, is going to be with the outgoing executive director of Community Solutions, John Corlett, which I'm really excited about. While Lauren's still working with CCS as a visiting fellow, today we're talking with him and two of his colleagues about his new gig with UVO Health, a company that helps federally qualified health centers deliver high quality care in a bunch of different innovative ways. And now they're working here in Ohio. Long-time listeners know that we absolutely love community health centers on this show. Some time ago, in fact, we had Julie DeRossi-King of the Ohio Association of Community Health Centers on, and I'm thrilled to share with you that she's now the president and CEO. So congrats, Julie. Those of you who have studied health policy a bit will know what UVO does as value-based care. But if that's not familiar to you, don't worry. We're going to explain it. And if you still have questions or want to learn more, we'll of course have helpful resources on our show notes at prognosisohio.com. In the interview, I talk with Dr. Laura Council, who's Chief Medical Officer at Uvo Health, Dr. Sarah Honan, Chief Medical Officer at My Community Health Center in Canton, and Lauren Anthes, who's Head of External Affairs at Uvo. Before turning to the interview, I need to eat some crow and admit that I mispronounced Dr. Honan's name a few times at the beginning. I appreciated her patience and understanding, and also thank Lauren for telling me to start getting it right about halfway through. And also, if you enjoy today's conversation and you want to help us make more, consider becoming a Patreon, which you can do at prognosisohio.com. We have really big plans for the next few months, and we could really use your support. We've all pledged uh, to keep the wonkiness to to a minimum, and to make sure that we're really centering patients and centering the the main reason that we do this work, which is health promotion. Uh, So I want to start there. Tell us a little bit about my community health center and and the patients you serve. I'm an Ohioan, but you know I don't know an awful lot about the specific needs in Canton and the kind of issues that uh, confront you daily. So. Tell us about your patients and maybe that will frame the kind of the policy questions we're going to get into.
2: Sure. So my community health center is a federally qualified health center that's in Canton, Ohio. And Canton, I think, is a reflection of many cities in Ohio and the experience of many um, areas in Ohio that have really changed um, with changes in industrial work and movement of industrial work. To other areas to more remote areas and loss of jobs and recovering from that and uh, regaining a new economic infrastructure um, with all of that happening currently. So the people that we serve at my community health center really range from uh, people experiencing significant poverty to people living in wealth. We take care of all kinds of different people at the health center, but um, what we really are there for and what our goal is, is to be a safety net so that everyone in our community can receive excellent health c- outcomes regardless of um, what their circumstances um, and uh, what they're experiencing at the moment. That's really the promise of a federally qualified health center, and um, many federally qualified health centers uh, serve that purpose in Ohio.
1: Like many parts of healthcare, it always strikes me how people don't understand just how broad the patient population is that calls a federally qualified health center their their home, their their medical home. And that really, that's another one of these kind of mythbusters that's really important as we start to think about what these centers bring to communities. Doctor Council, uh, let, let's have you talk a little bit about this. Like, like Dr. Hainan, you're a physician with extensive clinical experience. And now with you, Vo, you've moved into doing this work with with value-based health care, and we're going to get into that uh, a little bit more. I'd like you to help our listeners understand a little bit. Um, you're championing value, and we hear this word value out there now. If we're doing value now, what were we doing before?
0: <laughs> right. So value-based care is a way of paying for care where you're paying for the full outcome of health, the, the full health journey um, holistically. And that is really what family physicians, what uh, primary care physicians have always wanted to be doing. But our health system uh, has incentivized payment on something called a fee-for-service basis. Fee-for-service means that only the physician gets paid and they only get paid for something that they do. And they get paid more if it's a thing that they're doing, like a procedure, and less if it's a uh, advice or prescription that they're writing. And different kinds of specialties get paid in, in different ways. And in this fee-for-service system, as we learn, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. This fee-for-service system incentivizes a design of healthcare where you need to have a lot of patients come through, you need to have your doctors essentially doing everything, And you need to be billing a lot and managing your billing and your administration around your revenue cycle. And while the intention to care is there, often that intention has to be supported by grant work or extra time, uh, the, the kindness of the community. It's not supported by a payment system.
1: Sometimes doing less or doing things more intelligently is actually what's called for, it seems.
0: Yeah, and I think in, in every system, you want to work as efficiently as possible and use your resources as best as possible. Actually, that's what value is referring to. Um, but in in value-based care, there's a lot less need to churn for the sake of creating billable visits.
1: Yeah. No, it strikes me. We've talked with the folks from the Health Policy Institute of Ohio on this show. And, you know, they have their value dashboard and the Mm -hmm. value dashboard is really interesting because it's, it's not like Ohio doesn't do some things really well. And we obviously have great healthcare institutions, things like that, but we're not, we're, we're, we're wasting money essentially that could be used to do even better. So uh, Dr. Hannon, so to add to that a little bit, what does value-based care look like? Like I, I, I gather and listeners will gather that a lot happens on the back end, the financial stuff and all the, the things that patients hope they never have to experience. Will this change experiences for patients? The kind of partnership you have with UVO, um, which we're going to get into a little bit more in a moment, uh, Will will patients see this on the front end or is it just kind of all back end trying to get value out? Like, will it actually change patient experience?
2: Well, my hope is that it will. And these are conversations that I've actually had with Dr. Council as we were exploring the opportunity for this collaboration is how is this going to change the experience for not only our patients, but our providers. And I really see those going hand in hand where we need to have healthy providers and we need to have healthy patients. And those two things aren't so far apart. So how can we get to a space where our providers are really able to focus on outcome measures and really share the responsibility for care with the rest of the team, which is something we talk about kind of hypothetically in medicine, team-based care and really utilizing everyone in the workforce to take care of patients. But in reality, that's difficult to achieve in our current payment model where really everything lies on a billable visit with a provider and all of the other things that happen are really to support that billable visit with a provider, um, as opposed to everything that's happening in the healthcare center going to support the whole health of individual patients and of the community. It's really a paradigm shift. So although I do see this as creating a better experience for physician and uh, physicians, um, other providers such as nurse practitioners, PAs, um nurses medical assistants community health workers everybody that's part of the healthcare team pharmacists etc um this is going to be a challenging paradigm shift for everyone who's been in medicine for a long time and who's used to the way things are So even though things, I think, will be much better as we're able to focus on outcomes and focus on the things that really drive us and that we care about, it's still going to be an adjustment from how we're used to practicing. And we're going to have to share responsibility for care with many others, and that's going to seem foreign to us because it's something that most of us have never done. Um, But I'm excited to see what that could look like and what it could produce in terms of um, people feeling more joy in their work and patients seeing more from an outcome perspective than what they see now with uh, brief visits that feel too rushed and feel like they're not able to achieve what they're looking to achieve.
1: Yeah, every patient knows what it feels like to be rushed or to feel like... Mm -hmm. You know, you are just being ushered in and out. And th- this is something that, you know, here at, you're at a medical school right now where we're talking today, you know, we all talk about how we're going to do better with this, but like we're still waiting for the proof, right? We're, there's still, I mean, to convince American patients that this is actually going to get better must be, it's a real tough lift because we've been so deep in this fee for service model for so long.
2: Absolutely. And it, it almost creates a moral injury among the, the people that work in the system and the people who experience care in the system. And that creates distrust. And that takes a long time to repair. But it's these types of models that I think give us um, a vision of, of what something different could look like.
1: Let's just talk a little bit about what the mission is. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, again, keeping this on patient experience, but also the transformation of health institutions, one of the questions I have for you is this work you're doing is this, you know, you're starting small as you have to, but I mean, is the goal here to scale value in a big way? And I know Lauren's going to have something to add to that too, but we'll start with you, Dr. Council.
0: I mean, I'm a big picture thinker, so I really hope that what we're able to demonstrate is that value-based care and ultimately primary care capitation is one of the better ways to pay for health in America. I think that places with resources and money are able to put the activation energy into doing this, and many have already. But my concern is that federally qualified health centers were getting left behind because they didn't have the payment systems that allowed them to invest in this transformation.
1: So value-based health care is happening. It's kind of uneven, and I'm aware is it most prevalent right now if not at FQHCs?
0: Generally, it's uh, large health centers, especially large academic health centers that are able to, uh, that are large enough that they're able to get contracts with payers on their own and negotiate those contracts on their own. And whether these are for-profit or not-for-profit entities, in many cases, they are focusing on very specific populations. They're not necessarily setting up those contracts and their services to serve anybody who walks through their doors the same way that a community health center would be.
1: So Lauren, when you think about the, the you know, the value of value-based healthcare or why it's exciting, I mean, I know you yeah. to be, and, and this is a good thing extremely skeptical person, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's important in healthcare to be skeptical of shiny new things. And we've seen some shiny new things that didn't quite pan out. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is to convince me, what gives you the hope that this is really what it's promised to be?
3: Well, uh, with the near decade of cynicism about American healthcare that I've shared with you, um, I'll go beyond that, just, you know, debit and credit sort of aspect of it. You know, i worked in public policy for a really long time, and in public policy, in the same way that there's often solutions in say private companies that offer the best thing, um, we often find there to be a lot of limits. And so, I spent the last several years in my policy work focusing in on managed care and the new managed care system and the reprocurement, as we call it, the next gen Medicaid system, because the, the reality is in policy in Medicaid that the greatest instrument for a lot of policy happens through a managed care contract. That's where most of it is. If you talk to Medicaid directors, oftentimes when you want to do something, they say, well, have you thought about contracting for it? So there's a limit to how that work gets done. I think what's really exciting about this is, number one, it's focusing on the rate area. Dr. Council referenced this, but if we're going to do value-based care, it's about scale. How can you get scale? And this is a game that's been played since the early 90s, if you know anything about American medicine and purchasing and that sort of thing. But it gets concentrated in institutions, and what I would like to say about that is institutions aren't places that people trust, right? You can't just vertically integrate your way to addressing social risk factors like food insecurity and housing insecurity. And where the trust exists is with federally qualified health centers. It's with clinicians that work in the community every day who make that conscious choice to work with populations that have significant needs. Um, so unless you create the opportunity for them to participate in those same economic structures, they're going to get left behind or it's going to fail. So what's interesting about what we're trying to do is we essentially provide that same level of scale and sophistication and negotiation power. And instead of having it consolidated in these large essentially mega corporation, hospital nonprofit structures, we're distributing that through a collective approach between federally qualified health centers. And we're making a conscious effort to not centralize that just in the FQHCs, but also have conversations with community-based organizations. So when we talk about like infant mortality, for example, and we know that doulas in Medicaid are a big advocacy push, in a global capitated environment, an environment where you're taking on risk, We can just contract for that. We don't have to wait for the regulation to happen because we believe that there's an opportunity to pay for it. If you want to pay for medically tailored meals, you don't have to wait for an 1115 HRSN waiver to be approved. And that's wonky, I know. But the point is, the wonkiness was intentional there. You can just (laughs) do it. And when you decentralize that approach, when you make that approach, based off of where people feel the trust and you provide that kind of scale. That's just really exciting to me as a policy opportunity because you referenced HBIO before. Ohio has consistently fallen behind on value and it's partly because we are very good at face transplants and brain surgeries and really complex stuff. We are terrible at diabetes. We're terrible at hypertension. We're terrible at making sure people have ready access to primary care that's connected to the rest of the system. So you talk about the trust that community health
1: centers have, um, Dr. Honan. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you work in in one of these centers currently, and so you you experience this kind of day to day relationship building that's there. And I think we're just starting to realize, I and mean, we know, but we're just learning more and more how critical trust is to health care outcomes, right? what what about FQHCs generally? I mean, do they work well together? I mean, does this ultimately require really bringing a bunch of different community health centers together in in a kind of unified mission? And generally, do you share the kind of like, I mean, is there like a sharing of information and of support and all of that? Or is it, I'm guessing it's probably a little bit of both, competitive and some of the things that tend to undermine the efforts to really come together for patients?
2: I think that FQHCs, in general, want to see each other do well. Uh, we talk about FQHC people. FQHC people are FQHC people. Yeah. We care about community health. That's why we're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, we know each other. We go to conferences together. We exchange best practices. Every community health center has something that they do really well and something that they want to improve on. And usually that's different than what the community health next- center next door does. So there's a lot of effort to support each other. In taking better care of communities and to develop collaborations and to work with other community partners. The truth is that none of us can do this alone. It's too big. So the concept of um, sharing responsibility and of sharing best practices, I think, is something that really resonates with people in the community setting. And that may not be as replicable in bigger healthcare settings, which do have more competitive need
1: yeah like hospitals yes so so uvo has already made a footprint in new york my home state of new york and now ohio why ohio why why is ohio a logical place to bring the uvo
3: story well I, i think i can kick us off i think part of it is that Ohio Medicaid made a very intentional choice with how it redesigned its Medicaid-managed care system. So first of all, the conditions are right to do some really innovative things, which is advantageous. Not all states pursue this the same way. Some states don't really enable uh, the Medicaid department to actively negotiate a different type of contract because maybe the the plans have a disproportionate amount of the power or they have a lot of political capital. Um, but I think that there was a lot of innovation happening on that contractual level first.
1: Wait, are you telling me Ohio is doing something
3: innovative and that's setting us up <laughs> to do something meaningful <laughs> in healthcare? Uh, or I give that? a lot of credit to the, first of all, the, the last, uh, couple of administrations, Kasich administration reorganizing Ohio Medicaid to play a plom- prominent role as a cabinet agency, but also the DeWine administration and Director Corcoran really took a big leap trying to do this and then follow through on in the midst of COVID. And they're trying to hold the plans accountable. They're trying to take advantage of, of that structure. And so, you know, I'll just give an example of, of where that innovation is taking place and what can be unlocked in something like this. Let's take school-based health, right? We know that children's health care, adolescent, you know, well-child care really took a hit during COVID. School-based health makes a lot of sense because that's where kids are right? And so even as we think about utilization patterns and how things are changing and whether or not people are accepting vaccines, if you're able to deliver medicine in a setting that's convenient and that's easy, that is connected, well, isn't that great? Well, what's great about this new contract that Medicaid has put out is it's not just the very obvious quality metric of immunizations. They also have things like graduation rates and the third grade reading guarantee and absenteeism. So now you can start thinking more creatively and integratively between healthcare and other institutions. We know 80% of it isn't determined by what happens in a medical appointment.
1: So let's get a little concrete with this. Let's take, you know, any number of specific challenges we've had in Ohio or any other state, but let's stay with Ohio for now, the opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. How does something like what this, you know, the partnership that you have with UVO and, and, and my community health center, how does that set us up to do better with something like, like that kind of a social challenge? And maybe you have other examples that you're thinking about, you know, Lauren mentioned diabetes, for example, or other kinds of epidemics that often we don't even recognize as epidemics like diabetes. Can you give me a kind of an example of how this positions us to do better than we've been doing?
0: Yeah, FQHCs tend to be isolated in terms of the data that they get because they're not part of large integrated data streams. So when somebody goes to an emergency room um, with an overdose or um, seeking treatment, it's hard for the team, the primary care team to actually know that that's even happened. Um, So this ecosystem that influences health exists but it's not being leveraged well because the communication, the data transfer, um, and even the patient navigation around it is just so confusing. So um, what we're doing with our health centers in New York is trying to create this network where we have access to community behavioral health, we have access to um, addiction treatment, all things that existed prior to us. But our health centers did not have easy ways of moving patients between them. We are creating a data stream that pulls in records from the health centers and from the health plans and from all the hospitals and all of the the agencies. And we're taking this data, grouping it together, and then surfacing the data back to the health center so that they're more connected. They know that a patient may have just been in the the ER, um, was given maybe only three days of medical-assisted treatment um, when they really needed to be on 30 days. Um, So it just starts greasing the wheels of all of the friction points that exist in the current ecosystem. And then going forward, we hope, especially here in Ohio, with some of the policy and um, contracting available, that we can be even more innovative in those sorts of arrangements.
1: So Lauren mentioned some nice features of Ohio Medicaid and kind of how we've positioned ourselves to explore things like what you're doing with UVO. Are there still some regulatory hurdles, some tweaks you would like to see, some things you're like, if we only could get through that, this would be even just a little bit easier? After all, the whole point of policy is supposed to be making people's lives easier and
3: making it easier to do good things.
1: So are there some of those barriers
3: still out there? Well, I'll start, and I'd love any additional fe- I mean, what's interesting is we are a solution to some of those policy barriers. I've always had this critique around Medicaid from a policy standpoint that people just see Medicaid as this place where there's this like unending well of cash to just solve all the social service needs that exist, and that Medicaid should just pay for it. Instead, what I like to say is, why don't we use Medicaid, leverage Medicaid to address social risks, create data-informed policy advocacy that then can do things like support affordable housing and show the the value on that investment, support childcare and show the value on that investment, support education and show the value on that investment. Because at the end of the day, especially with our legislature, they want to be sure that they're being efficient with those Medicaid resources. And what we do is we provide a conduit. That has the same sort of spending they would have experienced and instead provide a vocabulary around the data and spending to say, actually, what you should be doing is investing in housing. So if, if I were to identify the policy barriers for us, it's not from a regulatory standpoint, what we're doing in healthcare. It's all the other things that the state should be investing in that make healthcare a lot easier. And quite frankly, this is a, one of the benefits of this system that we have with managed care. I believe the reason why, you know, a lot of legislatures pursued this were for political reasons. Mm-hmm. But as a consequence, now this is actually coming to a head. We have the flexibility to do things that we couldn't do before. And it means we can experiment, but the policy needs to outflow from that.
1: So Dr. Council and, and Dr. Honan, we have medical students who listen to this podcast and other health profession students. What's your appeal to them? to take seriously understanding these kinds of policy trends and developments and maybe even getting involved with them. I mean, my understanding for medical students is often they want to stay as far away from this stuff as they possibly can. But what changed that for you to say, you know what? I think I actually want to make this part of my life. I'd love to hear from both of you a little bit.
2: Sure. Well, for me, this was necessity. <laughs> In order for me to practice, I needed to understand these broader concepts that were significantly impacting the lives of my patients and my ability to do my job. At some point, you learn how to do the medicine and you get out and you think, okay, I'm empowered. I can do all of these things. And what you realize is that um, access to food, access to housing, um, access to childcare, education, basic things that all people should have. are absolutely essential to achieving healthcare outcomes that are equitable. And to be able to separate that, uh, it's just not possible. Not if you want to do the kind of care that really meaningfully influences the health of communities and really meaningfully decreases inequities. And one thing that I am excited about um, with the generation of docs that are coming up is that this is something they care about deeply, equity and um, social determinants of health, and really ensuring that we're doing better than we have. Um, and if they do care about that, um, they need to care about how the system is built, um, because this the way the system was built before is what got us where we are now. Doctor Council. Yeah, I I think you see all the things going
0: wrong in healthcare, and there's sometimes a reaction of wanting to just burn it all down and start over, mm-hmm. but you know people get really hurt in revolutions. And so what I saw was the opportunity of, of an evolution. We need to evolve to a, a system that supports the way we want to practice. And I had no interest in finance or policy or, or any or politics or any of that. I just wanted the system to support the way we need to practice. Well every system is built based on how it's paid for. And if you want to change how the system works. You have to change how the system's paid for. And the thing that I think is really helpful, especially for for medical students now, is that they're really seeing medicine as a team sport. And when you use value-based care to pay for a whole team and you're all working together to care for a group of patients, it's less isolating, it's less lonely. You don't feel that kind of dread of, you know, here's me sort of facing the day alone. You have this whole group of people with different complementary skills working with you. And if we can pay for that and spread that, I think medicine is going to be something people want to continue to do and continue to go into.
1: Last question here, and we can bounce around on this for a little bit. Uva Health is doing this work with, you know, putting a bunch of different pieces together. FQHCs, we have the idea, the philosophical world of value based care and services. What is what does healthcare look like? I mean, if if we're look, thinking about these students who are going to be practicing in twenty years or thirty years, um, is is the hope that I used the language of proof of concept before, but that this becomes so demonstrably true because I still hear critics, I mean there are people who who are still going to the mats for fee-for-service, mm-hmm. and they're concerned about what value might mean for them. And they hear the word capitation that we heard before, and they think of the 90s or something. Um, how do we get them excited about this? I mean, how do you make a pitch that value-based approaches, but also these kinds of community-based approaches are really where we need to be, not just because it's going to be what it's going to be, but because you should be excited about it?
2: I will say that I have seen approaches that focus more on community health and outcomes rather than who's delivering the work, work well, many years ago in places that you think that healthcare is not as advanced. When I lived in South Africa, this was in 2006, 2007, I learned so much about our healthcare system from watching how that system provided care to many more people with much fewer resources, and how they used real teams to actually tackle public health, major public health issues, like the HIV epidemic that was going on, uh, that was extremely significant at that time and and remains significant, but less so because of the efforts that were put in by community health workers working in concert with one Physician who was able to really expand what they were doing by, by utilizing a team structure. These are things that have worked well in places that are in more capitated models, maybe by necessity for a long time. And what we need to do is really think a little bit outside of, of what we're doing and what we're used to and look at models that work better in a public health way and are less expensive. And we see that they, these things are already done. We can see many models that have been effective in other places. And if we're willing to really consider how that might work in our own environment, how it might reduce costs in our own environment, how it might actually improve what we're doing for the opiate epidemic, for the hepatitis C epidemic, for the diabetes epidemic, for all of the things that we see, you know, I think that it might reduce fear to see that these types of uh, programs, these types of paradigms can
0: and do work. And I was lucky enough to work in a system that was mostly operating in in value-based care. So Cambridge Health Alliance is a safety net system north of Boston. And a clinic day that stands out to me, I was seeing a a gentleman who had come in kind of spur of the moment. Uh, He had been seeing me for hypertension, high blood pressure uh, for a number of times. And each time he came in, Yeah, we addressed his high blood pressure. And then I just said, you know, I'm here if you need anything. So one day he came in and and we addressed his high blood pressure. And then then he said, you know, by the way, I, I drink a bottle of vodka at night. And I've never told anyone that before. And he was only able to say that to me because I had seen him a number of times and just, you know, been there. But like, I only had three more minutes with this gentleman, right? And he had just told me the biggest secret of his entire life. What I was able to do was say, you know, I have somebody who wants to talk to you right now about this. And she's somebody on my team that I really trust. You know, can I bring Brittany in and, and talk to you? And I went down the hall and got Brittany who came in and talked talk to him. Now, she was not licensed. She was a trained um, community layperson, um, trained in, in behavioral health support she helped she met with him a number of times navigated him to aa uh, he disclosed to her that he had food insecurity so she not only navigated him to aa but passed him off to the person on our team who could get him connected to food resources and so i could go on with my day i i helped him with his hypertension he was able to take his medications because he wasn't drinking he felt supported in his mental health journey, and he got connected to food. And all of those resources were paid for because we had the right system in place that allowed us to design this clinic. It feels amazing to work in that system. It feels like you want to show up for work every day. You want to see the next patient. It even lets you stay on time because you have this team around you. And I just feel like everyone going into medicine deserves that, and that's why we have to do this transformation. You
3: well, know, Dr. Council, last night we were talking, and she she made this really poignant thing that's going to stick with me, which was during COVID-19, we saw 20 years worth of experience in our system operate within a single year. And if you think about federally qualified health centers and COVID-19 specifically, you saw them step up, and I would just highlight how important they were to controlling as much as we can or could the spread of the virus, right? They, they were key community resources in that effort. And they have that history of being tied since the civil rights movement as a movement. This is These are very intentional, mission-focused people. But to the point that was made, you want to make this transition where you can have the availability of those resources. You can determine how that work is going to look. But federally qualified health centers are regulatorily not able to take on downside risk. So when you talk about like how do you get comfortable with things, that's what Uvo was purpose-built to do. We take on the risk. We provide the administration. We give you all of that so that you can just do your mission, access these services in the way that you want to, as opposed to operating in a dysfunctional system because you feel like it's the right thing to do. You can translate your values from those individual encounters to something more systemic, which is the point. And this is why I wanted
1: to have this conversation today. Lauren has been coming to me and talking to me about this stuff in this, you know, the eyes lit up, kind of like looking at this, this model and and really think getting excited about it. And that's what people who really care about fixing the system look like. This is a podcast, so we don't have (laughs) quite the capture of it here. But it's real and, and it's impressive. So, you know, thanks for sharing what UVO Health is up to, my community health center, and the, all these different collaborations. I'm guessing we're going to come back in a, a year or two and just like growth, growth, growth. But, um, you know, you're going to learn a lot too. So, I um, hope you'll share it with us as you do. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE podcast experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests, as well as topics, or ways we can improve the show. Speaking of improving the show, to do that, we need your support. Please consider chipping in through our Patreon site, which is linked from prognosisohio.com. But even if you can't or won't, please just tell your friends about us. And thanks for listening.